Our scripture reading this morning, again, is from the first chapter of John. Uh, John chapter 1, beginning of verse 6, 6 through 13 this morning. Reading from the English Standard Version translation. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, open to us... uh, your word, uh, the word written, that we might understand the word who became flesh. And to, during this time of the year, to uh, have our minds deeply focused upon uh, what is the most amazing of all great mysteries and miracles, that the living God uh, became one of us in order that in his life and in his death we might have everlasting light and life in him. This is truly, Father, the, the whole meaning of this season of the year, the meaning of life every day for those who are believers. Enable us to be reminded of all that you've done in Christ. Remind us that all we have is Christ Convince us, having Christ, we have all there is to have. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning I want to begin by just reflecting upon the differences that we find in the four gospel accounts concerning um, how these gospels begin and where these gospels begin and what their emphasis happens to be. Remember in the Gospel of Mark, it really begins right when Jesus is beginning his ministry as an adult. And so that's the first of the Gospels most likely that was written. And then uh, Luke and Matthew are written most likely thereafter, and probably not too long thereafter. And they take the beginning of their Gospel, not at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, but all the way back to the time of Jesus' birth. And even in the reflection upon Jesus' birth, they go even further than that. Uh, We know that in Luke's Gospel, it actually begins with... uh, Uh, someone who was a relative of Mary, uh, a man who was a priest by the name of Zacharias, whose wife is Elizabeth. And uh, the angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias and announces that this elderly couple of the priestly line descended from Aaron are going to have a child in their old age. And this child is going to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the first person mentioned in the Gospel of Mark after the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, And and then the angel appears uh, a few verses later in another episode to Mary and announces that your child is going to be the son of the Most High. He's going to inherit the throne of his father, David. 
uh, he shall be high. And she says, how shall this be since I know not a man? And the angel Gabriel says to her, um, the power of the Holy Spirit shall overcome you and that which shall be conceived of you shall be called the Son of God. He shall inherit the throne of his father, David. And then we have what happens with Matthew. Uh, Matthew discovering that his fiancée is um, expecting a child. Uh, He knows this about three months because she's gone three months to spend time with her her relative Elizabeth, who's in her sixth month of pregnancy. When she comes back, uh, Joseph discovers that she's pregnant, and he knows he's not responsible. So, as it says, being a just and righteous man... He desires to put her away privily, that is, privately, not to expose her to public distress and public ridicule. Well, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says to him, Fear not, Joseph. That which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son. You're going to call him Jesus. He is going to fulfill the promise of Scripture uh, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. And call his name Emmanuel. So when he is born, you will call him Jesus, meaning God saves, because God is with us. And then we're also going to be, in the next couple of weeks, looking at what happens in Bethlehem, uh, both at the time that Jesus is born and then sometimes later when the Magi come. So those two Gospels place all this emphasis, uh, like the Gospel of Mark, primarily upon the humanity of Jesus, And then during the stories that they develop in terms of the the ministry of Christ, you see his deity breaking through in very, very powerful ways. You see it by the things that he says. Uh, Son, take up your bed and walk. Your sins are forgiven you. Who but God alone can forgive sin? So expressing then that he, the Son of Man, had authority upon earth, the divine authority, in order to forgive sin. Later, discussing the Sabbath, he said, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's only one who's Lord of the Sabbath. That's the Almighty God, the Creator, who created the Sabbath. And then the deity of Christ breaks out when he can speak and calm the, the waves and the wind when they're on the tempest upon the, on the lake. His authority comes through when by a word he can command and demons will leave those that they have possessed. He, can, he shows his divinity when he comes up to a woman who is a, a widow and her only son has died and he raises him from the dead. Again and again, in the humanity of Christ, his deity breaks through so that at the end of the gospel accounts of Mark and Matthew and Luke, there is no question. This one is the divine son of God. Now, John, the last of the gospels to be written, after the church has already understood and well understood that the one who is their savior is also their Lord, that he is also God. He is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He begins with the deity of Christ itself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he begins with the deity of Christ and then brings him into the world with the assumption of the humanity sharing that same flesh and blood like we ourselves have shared. Now, it's, it's a remarkable combination of stories to bring all of this together. And 
the reason we have chosen the Gospel of John during this season is to remind us that it's not just the nativity stories which celebrate Christ's coming into the world. The first part of John, the prologue to the Gospel of John, also speaks to this same message. It is veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. This is God in the flesh. This is the reason that we celebrate during this season. We are reminded through this time of the year. In the time of the year that's difficult, because season after season after season, as I grow older, I am so much more aware of how many have lost loved ones during the last two months of the year or the last three months of the year or even in this year and face this time without a father or a mother or an uncle or an aunt or a cousin and sometimes a sibling and sometimes even a child. That this season is sometimes the season of greatest heartfelt sorrow because of what we even as Christians have experienced. And then to compound this, there's just the darkness of the world around us. As, as we go through this world and the, the schizophrenia of the culture that decorates everything for Christmas and then has the competitive crowds rushing there to buy anything and everything they can. And you go through a store after a few hours of its being open, and what do you see? Not orderliness. You see all sorts of stuff pulled off all sorts of shelves and all sorts of a mess. And so we're reminded by whether it's the parking or the driving or the crowds or our own shortened tempers, and lack of patience, that this is a time of the year that can infect and afflict many people with the darkness that this world still lives in. Not only did long lay the world in sin and error pining before Jesus came, but apart from the grace of God, so much of this world still lays in sin and error pining. The Gospel of John, the prologue, these verses remind us where to fix our attention. It's to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who in these particular verses in John's Gospel is presented as the light. The light who is revealed, and that by a man who is the forerunner of Jesus. The light that was rejected, and that by the world at large, and the Jews in particular. And then the light that is received, the light that gives us all the right, the authority before God to become his son's and daughters. 
I want us to think first then about the light that is revealed as John presents it in verses 6 and 7 and 8. The focus here is upon the man John himself. Um, He introduces John the Baptist as a God-sent man with a calling to witness about the light in order that all might believe through him all might believe through this witness and testimony about the light. Now, John is mentioned early on in all the gospel accounts. As I mentioned, his own father, Zacharias, was a priest in the temple. Uh, He was the husband of Elizabeth, that relative of Mary. And Zacharias, on the day that his own son was born, was by the Holy Spirit given a prophetic message concerning his son, in which he says, this is in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 76, if you wanted to turn there. But he says, And you, child, speaking of his son, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So John the Baptist is born, and according to the law of Moses, he is born with the ancestry and destiny that would move him to become a priest and a servant of the temple services. But instead, even before he is born, God sets him apart in order to be a prophet, even this most significant prophet, who is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah with the calling to go before Jesus Christ and to prepare the way for the light that is coming into the world. Now, that's exactly where the Gospel of Mark begins. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, The ministry of John the Baptist mentioned first where the prophecy is quoted, Behold, speaking of John, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, the point is this. We read this and we see John was a man with a purpose. God changed the natural trajectory of his life, that of being a temple priest, set him apart as a forerunner and a witness about the light. As great and as significant as that calling was, here is what's notable about John. He did not want his life. He did not want his special calling in ministry to in any way be about himself. Later in the chapter 1 of John, we read that the Jerusalem leadership sent priests and Levites to John because they knew his ancestry. They sent to find out about John, what is this all about? And so they asked him, who are you? Now, they didn't mean that in the sense of 
oh yeah, we don't know the fact that you're John, the son of Zacharias. No, they meant this in terms of who are you in this larger sense of, of someone who's coming and calling the nation of Israel to repentance and baptizing them for the remission of sins. Who are you? And John says to them plainly, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. And so again, they say, well, what do you have to say about yourself? And John says this, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The wilderness of the darkness of the people of Israel at that time. I am the voice of one crawling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has spoken. John could see his only purpose in life was to bear witness to the light. And later, his own disciples, watching the ministry of Jesus and their disciples growing more attractive of crowds, growing larger than John's own ministry, seeing that the disciples are, are baptizing more than, than John and his disciples are baptizing. They're concerned about this. They're worried about this. This is what he says to his disciples. He, meaning Christ, must increase, and I must decrease. John the Baptist did not want any personal or individual glory. He did not want those who needed the true light to in some manner place their emphasis or attention upon him. Now I want us to realize that in, in John's purpose, as it was towards Christ, we have the premier pattern and example for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Every Christian has been called out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God in order to live according to God's divine purpose. To be salt and to be light in this world. Yet, our greatest tendency is to live for ourselves, which is the path back toward darkness. Because this is the darkness that we find in the world. Spiritually dead people make all the things of the world about themselves. Spiritually dead people make this short span of life of first importance. Spiritually dead people want personal glory, personal recognition. They are motivated by the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. They love this world. They love only this world. They love only the things of this world. They live for self. And they make the promotion and satisfaction of self that which is of first importance. John lived for Christ. John lived for his Redeemer. John made the calling, the divine purpose of first importance. 
the true light of Jesus Christ that is in you as a believer in Jesus points you in the same direction. Jesus is not just the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for your life. The second thing we see here in this passage involves how this light that comes into the world is rejected. And here we can look at verses 9 through 11. Uh, John speaks of an incredibly great truth in verse 9. Uh, He then goes on to verse 10 and 11, and the contrast is a great irony. Because in verse 9, John says that the true light the true light who gives light to everyone was even then coming into the world. He gives light to everyone is what the gospel writer says here about Jesus. Now, I appreciate really the remarks here of J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle, who was a very godly English Anglican of the late 1800s. Listen to his words, how he describes what it means for Jesus to be the light that enlightens everyone in the world. He says, Christ is to the souls of men what the sun is to the world. He is the center and source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, And fertility. Like the sun, he shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for high and for low, for rich and for poor, for Jews and for Greek. Like the sun, he is free for all. All may look to him and drink health out of his light. And Jesus is all of that because he is both the creator and the redeemer of the world. But now then, verses 10 and 11, we read how the word of God, the light and life of the world, has been rejected. And it is a double rejection. Uh, It's the world in, in general and the Jews in particular have rejected him. And what a great irony. And how strange that this has actually happened. How has this double rejection occurred except by the truth that a great darkness has been cast over the whole world. With respect to the world in general, we read in verse 10 that the true light, Jesus, was in the world and the world that he created did not know him. John, again, emphasizing the deity of Christ, the world that Jesus created that Jesus made, did not know him. Co-creator with his father, the world did not know him. Now, this rejection in this sense of knowing Christ is identical to what Paul says in the first chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, where we read about humanity's rejection of God. We read there that human beings, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth that God has made so clear in all of creation. Namely, 
What can be known about God is plainly evident. Because God has shown his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, ever since the creation of the world and the things which have been made. Everything about this world speaks of the intelligent design of the creator of this world. So that all human beings, every human being, is without excuse. Because having the knowledge of this God, a true knowledge of the true God which they have suppressed, they have refused to honor God, they have refused to give thanks to him as God, and the consequence has been their thinking has become futile, their foolish hearts have become darkened. This is the great irony of verse 10. The world did not know or recognize the presence of its creator in the person of Jesus when he came. But then verse 11, the second irony, the irony of the particularity of the fact that the Jews did not recognize him and did not receive him. His own people, his own kinsmen, when he came, they... they, This is the one that they had been told about for hundreds of years to expect. This is the one they had been encouraged to long for. They had been encouraged to hope for him. They had been encouraged to believe in him. But when he came, they did not own him, nor did they receive him. The response really echoes what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah says, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The double rejection, which John describes here, then embraces the entirety of the human race, Jew and Gentile. All are locked into spiritual darkness. Later, John will write about this in chapter 3. He'll say, this is the judgment. The light, referring to Christ, has come into the world. And the people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. A great spiritual darkness covers the world. That's why we as Christians ought to be the least surprised when we see evil proliferating in every place. Every indication is that America is in an unstoppable an unstoppable tide of full secularization and paganizing, which will have the character of turning the culture anti-Christian in every conceivable way. But that will only make our country more of the normal that is lived out and lived under by most of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the rest of the world. In the past two weeks, reports have come out of Iran. 
that nearly 150 Christians have been arrested as part of the government's attempt to warn Christians about evangelizing and witnessing and proselyzing during the Christmas season. The arrests have happened in 10 or 11 different cities, uh, especially pastors and church leaders have been targeted, designed to intimidate the rest of the believers, the rest of the churches. They've been taken to the two very worst prisons in Iran for interrogation and torture. The normal character of the world is to reject the light. Then we come to verses 12 and 13. The light received. And here John begins with a very, very significant word. But. The word signals a contrast, a change in direction. It signals that there is hope even in this dark situation. The darkness is not the whole story. The darkness is not the end of the story. There's more that takes place when the light comes into the world. There are, in fact, those who do receive him. And John describes this in verse 12. That those who receive him are those who are believing in his name. A believing that involves the whole aspect of trust and the whole aspect of commitment of one's whole life, body and soul, for life and eternity into the hands and care of Jesus. This is the way, John says, that people become children of God. A phrase that normally the Jews would have thought belonged to them and them alone. We only have God as our Father, they once said to Jesus, when he said, you are of your father, the devil. Only by trusting in Jesus did these become sons of and daughters of the living God, adopted into God's family, enjoying his love and care forever. The way of faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. But then verse 13. John makes it clear but what he says in verse 13, that even this matter of coming to Christ, to receive Christ, To trust in his name is the work of God. And John writes about how this comes about. Verse 13 describes this. Those who are spiritually transformed, who are delivered out of the domain of darkness, who are transferred in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, are spiritually reborn first, not of blood. The Greek there is bloods in the plural, uh, as though it's indicating not by any birthright or natural ancestry, certainly not because you're a Jew are you automatically a child of God. Secondly, it is not of the will of the flesh, which is to say this is not a decision that finds its source in human nature. You cannot trace your decision to become a Christian back to your own individual resources in any way at all. Nor of the will of man. Even more particularly, what John is saying there is that that becoming a believer does not find its actual turning point 
or its critical point of decision in a man's willpower or a man's choice. But then he says, but of God. This is how and why a person comes out of the darkness and into the light of believing in Christ. It is a spiritual rebirth which has its source entirely in God and from God. Now, no writer in the New Testament has ever expressed this whole process and translation from darkness to light than what we find Paul speaking of in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. Listen to what Paul says. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. That echoes John the Baptist. That echoes the true life and ministry of every Christian. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for his sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Notice the connection to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. Notice the connection to the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created, and God said, let there be light. Notice the echoes and reflections of everything that Paul is saying here that reflects back to the beginning of the scripture, the beginning of the gospel stories. There is one narrative here shared by all the Bible writers to the glory of Christ, and then this is what Paul says. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We who have come out of darkness have traveled that infinite distance between darkness and light by the grace of God because of the work of God shining the light of Christ into our hearts, enabling us then to believe. The great hymn writer, Charles Wesley, put it this way. Long my spirit, imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening wet ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. John describes the story of our redemption. And it's the great story with respect to this world. The light has been revealed into this world. The world in general even Jesus' own people in particular, have rejected this light. But the whole story is that God himself, in the light of his Son, has brought that light into the world so that we might, by God's own working in us, come to believe in him. 
This is where we should sit and rest and stand and live during the Christmas season. It's to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy set before him, even from the time that he first came into this world all the way through his life, the joy that was set before him, willing to endure the cross, to be the sacrifice for our sins, to be as John the Baptist bore witness to him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, born to set his people free. Eyes fixed on Jesus. So that we too might not forget that our purpose, like John the Baptist's purpose, is to bring glory not to ourselves, but to him who lived and died for us. This is what the table preaches to us this morning. We come to the Lord's table because here we once again, in the visible sign of the bread and the wine, we find the gospel dramatized, reenacted for us. His body broken, his blood shed, so that in eating of these things, we might understand the gospel given to us by faith. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the table that's before us. Keep our eyes fixed on your Son, our Savior. In his name, amen.